The only hope here is WCBN-FM. If you're ever stuck in Ann Arbor, stick around with WCBN-FM. Ann Arbor. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right on. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Martine Espada is here in the studio with me. Martine, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, thanks. Thanks for talking with me today because you're, you're here as part of the Zell Visiting Writers series. And these visits can be rigorous and <laughs> lots, lots of things packed in. For example, you were reading yesterday. You've had the, the poetry reading and signing and reception. That happened yesterday. Mm-hmm workshop with students today yes. and then tomorrow another a public conversation at UMA at the Helmut Stern Auditorium at about five yes um, and so that will be will that also will there be Q&A afterwards with the audience is that something I or, believe so yes okay so that a little bit of excitement yes. <laughs> you never know what you're gonna get lots right? of questions yeah what what are some of have you ever had like a question that in an open like a public place where it sort of cat at a reading, which has completely caught you off guard? Well, uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I was asked if I was a communist. What year was this? <laughs> Maybe about 10 years ago. Okay. Oh, so even quite recently. Yes. <laughs> what did you say? No. <laughs> did you say, are you? Are you looking? Are you recruiting? It wasn't that kind of question. It was. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, so there was a bit of... um. Like a, a sense of tension behind it or so. Yeah, I think anyone with uh, sympathies to the left of center would have been interrogated thusly. Uh, right. Uh, at least by that individual. I have to say that the greeting of the city was much different. Mm, yeah. Well, thank goodness. Yes. Thank goodness time, for that. Times are changing, hopefully. They change and then they unchange again. Well, it reminds me of the story of your father and his experience um, when he was on furlough. Um, trying to go home for the holidays, I think, for a few days. And Biloxi, he was on a bus. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Uh, my father, Frank Espada, was uh, born in Puerto Rico in 1930. Um, and uh, he came to this country, uh, settled in New York City with his family. And at the age of 19, he joined the Air Force. He was stationed at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Um, and in December of 1949, he boarded a Trailways bus in San Antonio in order to take that bus uh, through the south uh, on his way home to spend Christmas furlough with his family in New York. Well, he never made it uh, because uh, in December of 1949, uh, my father, uh, Frank Espada, was arrested in Biloxi, Mississippi for not going to the back of the bus. He was the only one on the bus. Um, and uh, when the bus stopped in Biloxi to change drivers, the new driver advised him that he had to retreat to the back. Uh, my father responded with a colorful obscenity um, and went to sleep uh, and uh, was awakened not long after that by state troopers who had been called by the driver to enforce order. 
Uh, he uh, came before a judge the next morning, and the judge asked him, my father used to do the voice, uh, boy, how many days you got on that furlough? And my father said, seven days. And the judge said, I hereby sentence you to seven days in the county jail. And my father said it was the best week of his life because he figured out what to do with the rest of it. Um, he um, got out of jail. He got out of the Air Force. Um, he got involved in his community organizing. He became part of the civil rights movement, um, the March on Washington, um, and also became uh, the person many people considered to be the leader of the Puerto Rican community in New York in the 1960s. That's a community of almost a million people. Um, and it all started in December of 1949 in Biloxi, Mississippi. For one 19-year-old yes. young man. That's right. And so you grew up then in this having your father as the activist, as a leader in New York in the 1960s. This was what you grew, grew up knowing. Yes. It probably just felt natural, organic. It, it did indeed. It was as natural as breathing. Uh, I always had difficulty understanding people who didn't grow up that way. Um, I, I was born in 1957. Uh, and I can remember um, by the age of seven having a kind of political awakening myself. How so? Uh, well, my father was arrested again and thrown into jail again. Uh, and this time, uh, it was uh, a demonstration uh, at the New York World's Fair in 1964, which may sound a bit strange. But in fact, what was going on at the time is that the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, especially the Brooklyn chapter of CORE, yes. was busy organizing uh, protests all over the city of New York to address various forms of discrimination. Uh, one of their targets was Schaefer Beer. Schaefer was a local uh, beer, a local brewery in New York, um, and a beer favored by African Americans or Puerto Ricans, as it turned out, but they weren't fond of hiring any uh, such people. And so CORE targeted, among others, Schaefer Beer. Now, Schaefer Beer had a pavilion at the New York World's Fair. <laughs> Um, An early, a beer tent. Uh, well, no. <laughs> it, it was sort of a massive beer tent, you might say. And there were pavilions sponsored by corporations all over the place, and there were demonstrations accordingly. Um, so uh, CORE uh, demonstrated at this pavilion, Schaefer Beer, uh, at the New York World's Fair in 1964, occupied the pavilion, um, and... Um, and your father was part of CORE. He was, he was involved. He got arrested with, and with 300 other people, sequestered. That's a big sweep. Yes. Uh, he was delivered with 300 other people uh, to a place called Hart Island uh, in New York, which uh, is best known as the Potter's Field for the city of New York. It's still in use today, and almost one million people are buried there. Um, but it was also uh, the site of a jail facility, and when Rikers Island would be overcrowded, they would send uh, prisoners to Hearts Island. Uh, and there they went, and they were incommunicado. So, in effect, my father was disappeared. Oh, geez. No in, one... in the United States of America. Oh, it happens <laughs> all the time. And, and uh, we didn't know where he was. My mother uh, had no idea. No one told me anything being seven. And so I would sit every day holding his picture and looking at it and crying because I assumed he was dead. Um, and then one fine day he walked through the door and <laughs> I said immediately, I thought you were dead. And he burst out laughing. And I remember that distinctly because he had gold teeth. Um, and then he so realized, a brilliant smile. Oh, like, well, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he realized after the initial laughing and crying and what have you that uh, he would have to try to explain what happened, and he did. He sat down with me and he tried to explain, as you might to a seven-year-old, what had happened. And he realized subsequently that he would have to uh, involve me or expose me in some way to what he was doing. So he started bringing me to his storefront, he had a place called East New York Action in Brooklyn uh, on Blake Avenue there. And uh, this is where they did various forms of organizing and various forms of, of 
uh, protests were uh, put together there. And I would go with him. And uh, I remember drawing on the back of leaflets, uh, depicting the, the same uh, picket lines and demonstrations I was witnessing for myself. So you're illustrating them. Yeah. And then I can remember being a little bit older, um, and um, maybe I was nine in 1966, and uh, my father was involved in organizing a protest for safe streets. There was a, a man by the name of Agropino Bonillo, who was a short order cook with 10 kids, who was um, attacked and, and kicked to death by uh, uh, junkies in, um, there in East New York. And, and my father and some of the local clergy uh, organized uh, a candlelight march and a vigil to the site of the killing uh, where various people, including my father, spoke out. Um, I remember that so vividly. I remember the candles. I remember the rain putting the candles out and people lighting the candles again and the rain putting them out and people lighting them again. Eventually I wrote a poem about it. It was called The Moon Shatters on Alabama Avenue. Very early poem. Um, but um, In one of your first three in books? In one of my early while, books, yeah. While you were a lawyer. Yeah, but these were all very, very much uh, formulating experiences mm -hmm. for me. So when I began to write poetry and publish, it never occurred to me to write about anything else. Um, right. So I was a little surprised when people said, well, you know, we don't do that, or you shouldn't do that, or, you know. People, so who, who, what sort of people were saying that to you? Like when you were, did you send the poems out, like to different I, I did. Uh, magazines? I, I, or, or Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, there are people who do believe that uh, poetry and politics should be kept separate. What um, do you say to them, I say, I say, ha. I say, <laughs> ha. And again, ha. And fi. And fi. <laughs> Zunes and huzzah. No, it's rather an absurd notion. <laughs> well, it feels like you can't. How can you separate? It's hard to imagine separating the unless you're working solely for sound. But even that would be, yeah. it seems like a, a political intention in some way of res resisting. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just say I can't do it. Leave it at that. <laughs> And you don't, and also you tell when you're working with young poets, whether it's back in in Brooklyn or in I imagine um, in Amherst, mm -hmm. you're telling them that the poetry happens inside, like you have the stories. Yes, well, I I want them to be true to themselves, and I think that's one of the most difficult things for young poets to absorb as an idea that uh, uh, you have to find your own voice and you you have to be. Uh, true to yourself, um, one of my shortest poems, and a poem that seems to have legs, as oh. they put it, is a poem um, called Advice to Young Poets, and this is it. Never pretend to be a unicorn by sticking a plunger on your head. Brilliant. We're going to take a short break. Today on the program, Martin Espada is here. He's all for unicorns, <laughs> but being your own type of unicorn, mm -hmm. not with any of those plungers. Um, Martin Espada will be at UMA tomorrow at five o'clock um, in conversation. Um, you can head there um, and ask him a question yourself. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got Stephanie behind the glass. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today. Martin Espada is here in the studio. We've got some of his books on the table, um, The Trouble Ball and The Republic of Poetry. You just heard a poem from The Republic of Poetry, both out by Norton. We also have the University of Michigan Press um, a collection of essays and commentaries called The Lover of a Subversive is Also a Subversive. Um, Martin, I have to tell you, that's one of my... A top, like, all-time favorite title. <laughs> I love that. It's a title for an mm-hmm. essay collection. Well, thank you. Did you buy the book? <laughs> oh, I was actually, it was given to me. Ah. I, was, I was lucky, huh? Okay, that's good. Yeah. The others are library books. I think that's what Martine is referring to. Okay, well, we can My draw. My Ann Arbor Library is, is not to your liking, Martine? <laughs> no, no, we can draw all over those books. I, I draw cartoons. <laughs> oh, that would be, okay. What are you going to draw? A self-portrait. Oh, and, and will that go in The Lover of Subversive is also? Is oh, absolutely. It's a spiritual self-portrait, so it's a bit raggedy. Do you draw with your other hand, not your dominant hand? Uh, no, I draw right-handed, and it still looks like I drew with my left hand. <laughs> um, before we go any further, I'm going to read your short bio, um, just so we've got it here. Martina Espada has published more than 15 books as a poet, editor, essayist, and translator. His forthcoming collection of poems is called Vivas to Those Who Have Failed. Ooh, that's a good title, too, Martin. Jeez. Okay. Um, on with the bio. Other books of poems include The Trouble Ball, The Republic of Poetry, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Alabanza. Um, his honors include the Shelley Memorial Award, the Penn Revson Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. His book of essays, Zapata's Disciple, uh, was banned in Tucson as part of the Mexican-American Studies program outlawed by the state of Arizona. Espada is a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, because this is radio, you can't see. I like started smiling about the the banned book. I don't usually, it's yes. probably not oh, the reaction you always get. But I remember reading about that in your um, in your biography that's online on your website, mm-hmm. and um, and thinking, then you're doing something right, Martine. Well, not that they're uh, wrong in Arizona to ban it, but it's you're, you are doing something right. It's, it's, these are things that have to be said in the world. Uh, I certainly consider it a badge of honor yes. uh, to be banned in Arizona, um, uh, which has uh, uh, become the you know the Mississippi of the present day. Um, this, of course, uh, was a result of uh, uh, House Bill twenty two eighty one which banned ethnic studies in the state of Arizona uh, with an eye towards uh, the Mexican-American Studies program in Tucson, a very successful uh, academic program. Um, and it slowly emerged after uh, that program had been banned um, that, uh, in fact, there were certain books on that list. The list uh, came out after a report commissioned by the state itself found that there was nothing wrong with this uh, ethnic studies program that did not foster racial resentment as alleged by the state of Arizona. Uh, and then the list of books emerged. Uh, and um, I believe at first Shakespeare was on the list with The Tempest. Uh, that was quickly unbanned with reddened faces. Uh, but then other books uh, remained banned, uh, including my own, Zapata's Disciple. Um, and I was, uh, of course, far from being alone there. Uh, Henry David Thoreau was also on that list. Uh, James Baldwin was also on that list. Howard Zinn was also on that list. Jonathan Kozel was also on that list. Not to mention virtually every leading uh, Mexican-American and Native American writer in this country. Uh, Sandra Cisneros, Sherman Oleksii, Leslie oh, Marmon Silco, Jimmy Santiago, Baca, Ana Castillo, on and on and on. Um, so you're in good company. It almost uh, sounds like the Poets Against War it, uh, group. <laughs> it would make for a very nice anthology, indeed. Um, but, you know, I've been banned before. You know, this is not new. Uh, I was actually once um, had uh, the same book, as a matter of fact, was uh, banned by the state of Texas, uh, particularly the penal system. Uh, the publisher uh, donated or wanted to donate uh, copies of that book to the prison system in Texas, and they refused to allow that, and they cited um, a regulation uh, wherein um, they expressed a concern that the book might lead to uh, rioting among the inmates. 
Um, or ideas. And, and then there was another citation to the use of racial slurs in the book. And I thought that's peculiar. I don't remember doing that. Um, and they had cited the page. So I went to the page and it was, uh, it was actually an, uh, an anecdote where I recalled racial slurs being used against me. So they had kind of twisted it around a bit. And I thought, well... Or had they read the page at all? <laughs> oh, they had to in order to be <laughs> to so specific. Yeah. But I thought, how ironic, here's the state of Texas protecting uh, their uh, prison inmates from exposure to my book, even as it continues to execute them. Terrible. Grim bit of humor there. It is. It's, oh, Texas. Oh, and Texas, yes. I mean, and, and, and you know, again, that dovetails with my father's experience in, in uh, San Antonio. Um, and, of course, I've been thinking a lot about him because uh, my father, Frank Espada, died a year ago. Um, and uh, I have been working on uh, poems about him ever since. Uh, I wrote uh, a sequence of 10 poems about him, which uh, forms the heart of the forthcoming book you mentioned, uh, Viva to Those Who Have Failed, uh, a phrase that comes from Whitman, by the way. That book will be published by Norton next January. Um, I want to read one of those poems now, as long as we're talking about Texas and we're talking about the Air Force. Uh, I'll read this one, which um, I did not read the other night, so uh, this is uh, uh, new. Um, my father hated the Air Force. He really did. Um, and the other day I was doing what you so often do when someone passes away. You're sifting through stuff. And, and I have been writing poems about some of that stuff. Uh, this is a poem that came about because of a wristwatch. And it's called The Beating Heart of the Wristwatch. My father worked as a mechanic in the Air Force, the engines of the planes howling in his ears all day. One morning, the wristwatch his father gave him was gone. The next day, he saw another soldier wearing the watch. There was nothing. He could say no one would believe the greaser airplane mechanic at the Air Force base in San Antonio. Instead, one howling night he got drunk and tore up the planks of an empty barracks or firewood. There was no way for him to tell time locked in the brig. When he died, I stole my father's wristwatch. I listened to the beating heart of the watch. The heart of the watch kept beating long after my father's heart stopped beating. Somewhere, the son of the man who stole my father's wristwatch in the Air Force holds the watch to his ear and listens to the heart of the watch beating. He keeps the watch in a sacred place where no one else will hear it. So the son tries to resurrect the father. The Bible tells the story wrong. We try to resurrect the father. We listen for the heartbeat and hear the howling. Thanks, Martine. Thank you. So, and that's part of the, the longer sequence of poems. That's right. And where does it, where does that poem come in them? Because is it, are you using these memories of like an object for the other poems as well? Or? Uh, they're, uh, not every poem. Uh, that's the second poem in the sequence. The first poem in the sequence also uses objects. Um, and um, it, the first two poems do that. Uh, the other one is called Haunt Me, uh, which uh, begins uh, with uh, uh, the finding and examination of, of two uh, little Kodak boxes of 8mm film, which... Um, I was uh, I, I was I received not only the boxes but this uh, a CD where the, the film was burned and so I was able to watch seven minutes of uh, silent film home movies of an Espada family reunion, at, which produced a very very emotional poem, um, and uh, I'll read that one too. Um, this one is called "Haunt Me," for my father. I am the archaeologist. I sift the shards of you, cufflinks, 
passport photos, a button from the march on Washington with a black hand shaking a white hand, letters in Spanish, your birth certificate from a town high in the mountains. I cup your silence, and the silence melts like ice in a cup. I search for you in two yellow Kodak boxes marked Puerto Rico, Nochebuena, Diciembre, 1968. In the eight-millimeter silence, the espadas gather, elders born before the Spanish-American War, my grandfather on crutches after fracturing his fossil hip, his blind brother on a cane. You greet the elders, and they call you Tato, the name they call you there. Uncles and cousins sing in a chorus of tongues without sound, vibration of guitar strings stilled by an unseen hand, maracas shaking empty of seeds. The camera wobbles from the singers to the television and the astronauts sending pictures of the moon back to Earth. Down by the river, women still pound laundry on the rocks. I am eleven again. A boy from the faraway city of ice that felled my grandfather, startled after the blind man with the cane stroked my face with his hand dry as straw, crying out, Bendito. At the table I hear only the silence that rises like the river in my big ears. You sit next to me, clowning for the camera, tugging the lapels of your jacket, slicking back your black hair, brown skin darker from days in the sun. You slide your arm around my shoulder, your good right arm, your pitching arm, and my moon face radiates, and the mountain song of my uncles and cousins plays in my head. Watching you now, my face stings, as it stung when my blind great-uncle brushed my cheekbones searching for his own face. When you died, Tato, I took a razor to the movie looping in my head, cutting the scenes where you curled an arm around my shoulder, all the times you would squeeze the silence out of me so I could hear the cries and songs again. When you died, I heard only the silences between us, the shouts belling the air before the phone went dead, all the words melting like ice in a cup. That way I could set my jaw and take my mother's hand at the mortuary, greet the elders in my suit and tie at the memorial, say all the right words. Yet my face stings at last. I rewind and watch your arm drape across my shoulder over and over. A year ago, you pressed a Kodak slide of my grandfather into my hand and said, Next time, stay longer. Now, in the silence that is never silent, I push the chair away from the table and say to you, Sit down, tell me everything. Haunt me. Thank you, Martine. And thank you again. That's so. Um, thank you for reading that because I think that you you prefaced it by saying what happened during the writing of it was and what it became was a very emotional poem so it's almost like you have to splice the film to probably deliver the poem so thank you for reading it for us well you're welcome and it is uh i mean you can hear the difference between the two poems uh, you know that uh and whereas they come in a certain sequence uh, in the book um that first poem i read was the first poem i wrote for my father and the last poem I read was the last poem I wrote for him. So I underwent a kind of metamorphosis and I was able to progress in the direction of saying something more uh, emotional and, and, and risky. It almost feels with this poem that you ain't done yet. Oh, no. No. By, by no means, no. Because this is your opening. 
Yeah, it's yeah. I'm not dumb, <laughs> and we're not even going to talk about the one I read at his memorial service. You know, but suffice it to say that this is a way of of addressing, you know, not only the loss but uh, a way of uh, of embracing others who have shared the loss. You know, it's not for nothing that uh, people seek out poets at times like this. Uh, you know, people crave meaning in a moment that appears so meaningless uh, as death. Uh, and, and poets have a way of hopefully distilling that meaning for people. It makes me think of this idea that I attribute to you in a way of practical poetry, which is working against that. Because it's not, it's, it's sort of, poetry is needed. And that's what you're just saying. Well, of course. Uh, it, uh, poetry uh, is absolutely uh, necessary. It's indispensable, uh, I think. And this is despite whatever the sales figures might say. You know, There's no price tag on a poem. Uh, and and thank goodness for it, you know. And you know, having said that, I don't simply indulge in in poems of grief. You know, I don't want to, you know, no. become known as you know the grief poet or something like that. And and there's a way in which poets get put into boxes, <clears throat> and that would uh, that would be unfortunate. Um, and so for every time. <clears throat> that poetry seems to have some healing property or some redeeming qualities. There's another situation where poetry just doesn't do that. Yeah. And, and, or uh, wakes us up in some other way. Yeah. Uh, except I think we have to be able to poke uh, fun at ourselves to be aware of our own absurdity and our own futility at the same time. Um, and I've got a little poem that does just that. Let's. Martine, let's take a short break. And when we come back, can we hear the poem? Oh, all right. And maybe we'll talk more about unicorns. <laughs> yes, got... I am pro-unicorn. <laughs> Clearly. Um, you've got living writers. I'm Tia Hetzel. Today, Martine Espada is here. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers today. Martine Espada is here. We're talking poems um, and hearing some poems, hearing new poems, as well as poems from some of your earlier books, too. Thanks for bringing the new ones. There's such a um, there's a different type of uh, energy when those the sheaf of poems come out on the table. Yes. <laughs> yes, there's energy. All right. So right before the break. 
we were talking about this particular poem that's in front of us. And, yes, yeah. and you know, we've been talking about the uh, the power of poetry, and I believe in the power of poetry. Uh, it's healing properties, uh, and and so on. And yet, there are times when uh, poets can be quite full of themselves, and it's important to be able to uh, uh, comment upon that as well. So, take them down a peg. <laughs> uh, yeah, and take me down a peg in the process. So. <laughs> Uh, here's a poem, again, uh, you know, my poems all come from someplace real. I did a reading at the Coney Island Aquarium uh, with the jellyfish in the background. That sounds like a great location. Oh, it, uh, well, let me read the poem. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, this is uh, a Did poem. an octopus take a picture of you while you were doing this by any uh, chance? Fortunately, <laughs> the octopus couldn't get at me, although <laughs> the octopus makes an appearance in the poem. Uh, this is a poem called Once Thundering Penguin Herds Darken the Prairie. <laughs> One, poetry for tourists. The poets bring poetry to the Coney Island Aquarium, around the corner from the wooden roller coaster creaking since 1927, tourists staggering away queasy yet hungry for a hot dog on the boardwalk. We will tempt them to taste the steamed tofu dog of poetry instead. Two, poetry for jellyfish. Tonight, we declaim poems at the jellyfish exhibit, creatures that plummet like parachutes of light, illuminated mushrooms zooming sideways, amusing themselves, oblivious to the nuances of alliteration and assonance, silently refusing to clap after the last poem. Three, poetry for penguins. The voice of a poet on a loop Installed in the penguin exhibit booms out poetry and praise of penguins. Once thundering penguin herds darkened the prairie. Once flocks of flapping penguins blocked out the sun. Now they cower behind a rock, peeking, ducking down, listening to poetry for penguins, hearing only the rumble of the almighty orca opening his jaws on Judgment Day. Four, no poetry for the octopus or the security guard. The Coney Island Aquarium is closed. We are locked in. The octopus glares at us with one huge eye. No one fed him today. No one read him any poems. We panic and flap like flightless birds. We rattle the gate, wailing in chorus. We are the poets. Let us out. The security guard glares at us with one huge eye. No one fed him today. No one read him any poems. He unlocks the gate anyway. That's a damn good poem there, Martin. <laughs> Why, thank you. Oh my gosh. The penguins are blocking out the sun. <laughs> I love that there's like a, a peng penguin cannon now. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I want to uh, emphasize that I wrote that poem uh, stone sober. I don't imbibe in anything. I was... Uh, yeah, that one big eye of the security guard after the octopus. Yeah. Very nice. Uh -huh. <laughs> what he looked like. Well, that's certainly, that shows us poets. <laughs> yes, that's the other side, you know. Poets all puffed up like uh, penguins, if you will. Yeah. You know, but, you know, Coney Island is actually a touchstone in the in the book. There's several poems that reference Coney Island. Um, and uh, it obviously is a section of Brooklyn. I didn't spend that much time there when I was a kid, but uh, I seemingly uh, I keep coming back to it in one form or, or another. Well, it's symbolic, isn't it? Like yeah. It, it, it's, 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 yeah. It's that place. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's another poem that makes reference to Coney Island. It's another new poem. Uh, we talked about Howard Zinn before the program. Howard Zinn should be a name familiar to many of your listeners here in Ann Arbor. Uh, Howard Zinn was a good friend of mine. 
uh, he was a, a, a wonderful historian and a people's uh, historian. A people's historian wrote a book called "The People's History of the United States," sold more than two million copies. Uh, but also uh, an activist and a teacher and a leading progressive voice in this country in so many ways. Uh, Howard uh, passed away in 2010, and I wrote two poems for Howard. I wrote uh, a poem for his memorial service, which you know turned out well enough, but it was a poem I wrote quickly and with a very specific purpose. And then a couple years later, with some time to think and breathe, I wrote another poem, which I think comes much closer to the heart of how I felt about him. Was the other poem, Martine, was it Walking, yes. the one that is in That's the That's the one Trouble in the Ball? Trouble Ball. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes I find myself, when someone dies, I'll write a poem immediately for ceremonial occasion, and it says what it needs to be said. And then after some reflection, a year or two Later, I'll write something else that's much more personal. And that's what this is. It's really a tribute to a teacher. Um, and that's what Howard was for me. So this is a poem, uh, again, this actually happened uh, at his house, called Castles for the Laborers and Ball Games on the Radio for Howard Zinn, 1922 to 2010. We stood together at the top of his icy steps, without a word for once, squinting at the hill below when the tumble we were about to take, heads bumping on every step till our bodies rolled into the street. He was older than the bread lines of the Great Depression. Before the war, he labored at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, even organized apprentices, but now there was ice. I outweighed him by a hundred pounds. When my feet began to skid, I would land on him and hear the crunch of his surgically repaired spine. The books I held for him would fly away like doves disobeying an amateur magician. Let's go back in the house, I said. Show me the baseball Sandy Koufax signed to you from one lefty to another. Instead, he picked up a blue plastic bucket of sand, the kind of pale good for building castles at Coney Island, tossed a fist of sand down onto the sun-frozen concrete, and took the first step, delicately. Again and again, he would throw a handful of sand in the air, like bread for pigeons, then probe with the tip of his shoe for the sandy place on the next step. Sand, then step. Sand, then step. Every time he took a step, I took a step. An apprentice shadow studying the movements of his teacher, the body. This is how I came to dance a soft shoe in size 14 boots, grinding my toes into the gritty spots he left behind on the ice. I was there. I saw him turn the tundra into the beach with a wave of his hand, Coney Island of castles for the laborers and ball games on the radio, showing the way across the ice and down the hill into the street, where he spoke to me the last word to the last lesson. You drive. <laughs> what a lovely memory. Yes, yes, it was. It was. And so he he is he was an um, a teacher to you in 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 part of how you choose to live your life and and maybe teach others and and maybe even a sense of urgency about your work. Oh, absolutely! Uh, Howard was a, a wonderful teacher. I uh, I never took any classes with him or anything of that nature, but he was always teaching and. Uh, yeah, he he was um, or probably the single most generous human being I've ever known. How so? Remarkably warm, you know. Um, and and I do feel incumbent. There's a certain urgency I have now to pay tribute to my uh, my teachers in the plural, my fathers in the plural. And if I could read one more poem. You know what? We have to take a short break, but then we'll let's. Could we do it after the break, Martine? Uh, it's your show. Then let's do it. We'll let's take a it. short break, and then we, I'd love to hear some more poems. Okay. Um, 
Definitely. Absolutely. And maybe talk a bit about what it is for poems, like like a sense of urgency. It makes them alive. Yes. Um, today on the program, Martine Espada is here. You've got Living Writers. I'm Dee Hetzel. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Martine Espada is here in the studio. Um, Martine, thanks for thanks for coming down today to the station. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you are no stranger to radio stations, uh, campus, college radio stations, in fact. Well, actually, um, I uh, did radio um, between 1977 and 1982 at WRTFM in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, that's not a college station. That's a listener-sponsored station in Madison, um, but uh, very, very much like a college station in many respects. It, it is not uh, an NPR station. didn't have those kinds of facilities or that kind of panache. It was, uh, but it also had... The, the the principles and the politics and, and the music um, and I loved that station and I use I did I did news I did public affairs I did weather I did you know the I actually lived in the station there was a an apartment between the newsroom and the transmitter and uh, <laughs> And I moved out, I lived there for over a year. And, so you uh, really did do everything. And, like if there yeah. was a live mic and there was no one on it, you were the well, man for the job. I, I, I would wander out at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning in my bathrobe with my toothbrush and, you know, I would, uh, you know, sub for whoever was on and wanted to take a cigarette break. Um, but I had access to the biggest record library in the city. Um, and that's where I learned about music. Yeah. There's talk about no better teacher. Yeah, to be there. Well, well, I'll show you around the place here. You have a quick look before you head out. Well, I still believe there's no better way to learn about music than listening to the radio. It's Amen. A, it's that simple. You know, you want to learn about music, listen to the radio. And a, a station that loves many different types of formats, genres, all of the... Mm -hmm. Just like I feel like we're just doing a WCBN blurb here, yeah. like a little plug. <laughs> and and I used to play poetry on the radio. Did I say you? Yeah. play because I used to pilfer the records from the local library uh, and and put them on the air. Um, and uh, I remember playing records not only of the famous but the obscure uh, record, recordings of, of uh, Sterling Brown, great African American poet, who at that time was out of print, and no one remembered him i played this on the air and, and that's political said, that's a political action absolutely and that carries over into my work as a poet because oftentimes i'm writing about uh other poets who i believe have been unjustly neglected and and that brings me to jack agueros um jack agueros uh, was uh, a poet but much more than a poet uh, jack agueros was um a playwright uh a writer of short fiction, a translator, an essayist, 
um, a community organizer, a good friend of my father, in fact, and the director of something called El Museo del Barrio, the only Puerto Rican museum in the mainland United States at that time. Uh, Jack uh, would organize uh, every Three Kings Day uh, a parade of camels and sheep right through the snow of East Harlem. Uh, he was that kind of visionary. Uh, he was That's also, a beautiful thing. Oh, absolutely. And he was also a second father to me, very, very close, especially uh, later in life. Uh, uh, but um, Jack was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease 10 years ago, uh, and he passed away in May. Uh, I lost a lot of people last year. But um, when he was originally diagnosed, a bunch of us got together uh, and we organized a benefit for Jack in the East Harlem neighborhood where he was born and raised. And I wrote this poem for the occasion, um, and it appears in my book, The Trouble Ball. It's called Blessed Be the Truth Tellers for Jack Agueros. In the projects of Brooklyn, everyone lied. My mother used to say, if somebody starts a fight, just walk away. Then somebody would smack the back of my head and dance around me in a circle, laughing. When I was twelve, pus bubbled on my tonsils, and everyone said, after the operation, you can have all the ice cream you want. I bragged about the deal. No longer would I chase the ice cream truck down the street, panting at the bells to catch Johnny, the ice cream man, who allegedly sold heroin the color of vanilla from the same window. Then Jack, the truth-teller, visited the projects. Jack, who herded real camels and sheep through the snow of East Harlem every three kings' day. Jack, who wrote sonnets of the jail cell and the racetrack and the boxing ring. Jack, who crossed his arms in a hunger strike until the mayor hired more Puerto Ricans. And Jack said, You gonna get your tonsils out? Ay, bendito coochie frito, Puerto Rico, that's gonna hurt. I was etherized, then woke up on the ward, heaving black water onto white sheets. A man poking through his hospital gown leaned over me and sneered, You think you got it tough? Look at this, and showed me the cauliflower tumor behind his ear. I heaved up black water again. The ice cream burned. Vanilla was a snowball spiked with bits of glass. My throat was red as a tunnel on fire after the head-on collision of two gasoline trucks. This is how I learned to trust the poets and shepherds of East Harlem. Blessed be the truth-tellers, for they shall have all the ice cream they want. It's not easy to tell the truth, either. Oh, no. I mean, even if you think it, you know, sometimes even to ourselves. And you pay a price, and and he paid a price. Um, But ultimately, uh, he is uh, not only remembered, but loved. By many. That's a legacy. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. It reminds me um, this, of reading in, in the, your collection of essays, The Lover of a Subversive is also a subversive. I think there's a moment where you're, you and your father are going back to Puerto Rico and you are looking for your great-grandfather's burial site. Is that true? And you couldn't find, because he was the mayor yes. back in this, the mountain town. Yes, uh, that's right. My great-grandfather was mayor of uh, Utuado, Puerto Rico. So there's, there's the political consciousness that is clear in your, your family. Yes, it, it was passed on from generation to generation, I think. Um, and we did go back to, to look for the grave. We never found it, but in the process we found something inside ourselves. Uh, absolutely. Um, and yes, it's worth mentioning that collection of essays was published by the University of Michigan Press. The Lover of Subversive is also subversive. It also includes an essay about Jack Agueros, as a matter of fact. Yes. And mm-hmm. also, 
Well, we were talking about Sam Hamill, but this yes. is another. This is another book. This is returning us to the Trouble Ball mm-hmm. and Sam Hamill, founder of Copper Canyon Press. That's right. A, a real, a, a truth teller, an advocate, yes. crusader for poetry, also against the Iraq War. Poets yes. Against the uh, War. Sam Hamill was the founder of Poets Against the War. Let's not go and have tea at the White House. Yes. While. While there's a war going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. A genuine hellraiser. <laughs> um, and a good friend of mine. And uh, someone who started off with a really hard scrabble life, an orphan, a runaway, in and out of juvenile detention, in and out of jail. And yet poetry, to hear him tell it, saved his life. Um, and so I wrote this short poem for Sam, uh, my good friend, called Blasphemy. Let the blasphemy be spoken. Poetry can save us. Not the way a fisherman pulls the drowning swimmer into his boat. Not the way Jesus, between screams, promised life everlasting to the thief crucified beside him on the hill, but salvation nevertheless. Somewhere a convict sobs into a book of poems from the prison library, and I know why his hands are careful not to break the brittle pages. Thank you, Martine. And thank you again. So poetry does save lives. We're just going to come out and say that. I think we can. And we can because there are so many people who testify to that, who say, that was me. It happened to me. And when you think of someone like Sam Hamill, who was rescued from oblivion by poetry and poets, um, particularly Kenneth Rexroth, and who goes on to found Copper Canyon Press and Poets Against the War and become a major poet and translator, uh, especially from the Chinese and the Japanese which he, ta- he taught himself classical Chinese and Japanese so he could translate from those languages. This is someone who can say poetry saved my life, and I believe him. And it can be for, I don't know, it could be for everyone. Not It doesn't have to feel as grand as that, perhaps, but also just to recognize it's part of life. It's just like yes. the everyday. It can be Coney Island and penguins. <laughs> But it is part of the everyday, and as the uh, poet of El Salvador, uh, Roque Dalton, famously said, poetry like bread is for everyone. Yes. And I edited an anthology with that very title, Poetry Like Bread, from uh, Poets of Curbstone Press. Um, so, Martin, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. And I'm going to be talking where tomorrow? Tomorrow at UMA at 5 o'clock. You're going to be again in conversation and there's going to be a Q&A afterwards. Yes, talking and talking and talking. More talking with Martin, Martina Espada. Thanks for listening, everyone, to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
goes up with the layup and puts it in. He got it, Zach Irvin from way downtown. Splashes home for Walt. Beeline's going to let him play. Walt takes it across the timeline. Gets a screen from Bielfeld. Gives it back out to Dawkins. Back to Walt. Open three from the left wing. He got it. Derek Walt ties the game. Oh my god! 